The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter 5 is where we'll be. And as you're turning there, let me just say, I'm so grateful for those that are out there working every single Sunday that are volunteering. And uh, I, I texted Bree early in the week and I just said, hey, this is what I'm up against. I have to deal with a passage and it, and it really deals with some pretty explicit material. And uh, I just want to be able to protect our, our children. Do you think that we could offer this? And Bree, without hesitation, this is your children's director, without hesitation said, absolutely, we'll make that work. And I'm thankful for that spirit. I also want to challenge you that uh, she can't do that by herself. There's no way she could. And so I would just, she's always in need of volunteers. If you're looking for a place to serve, uh, our children's ministry is a great place to plug in. There are other places as well, but I just want to put that plug in for them and say thank you to them for accommodating us uh, today. Well, I can think of probably, and I'm not going to list them, but if you, if you were to list the most awkward things to talk about in church, uh, this would be probably at the top. Uh, some people would say money would be up there or other things, but today we have to deal with the issue of, of sex and what is, what, what does the Bible say about this? What does God have to say about it? Here's what I'm going to do for you today. I'm going to stay as close as I can to the Word of God because I know that if I tether myself there, I will stay out of trouble. And you will receive what you need. Okay, so this is, I, I make this commitment to you today. I am not going to be, uh, I stole this language from, I can't remember, Travis, the book that, that you went through, uh, but stole the language from there. I do not want to be filthy in any way today, but I do want to be frank. I want to be as frank as the Bible is frank because God has preserved this for us to hear. Sound good? All right. So, let me, uh, let me just read for you, not a lot of opening, because I told my wife yesterday, I said, you know, I know it's time change Sunday, people are going to be sleepy, it's going to be rainy, people are going to be sleepy, but I don't feel like I need a whole lot of illustration today, because people are either going to be like all in listening or scared to death of what I'm going to say, okay, so I think I have you, am I, am I right in that? Everybody's afraid to move. All right, so Ephesians chapter 5. Let me read all the way, verse 1 through verse 7, okay? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, or, nor, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not... Do not become partners with them. Now, in this, what I want to do today is I want to show you some things. I want to point out some things about true love. I want to tell you uh, one thing to, or, or a few things that we're to reject, these false loves that we are to reject. 
Then I want to tell you what true love that, that we are to receive. And then we're going to finish with these three applications, these three real practical points of application out of this text, just so you know where we're going. So first off, out of this passage, true love. True love, first off, is modeled by Jesus. Now, Jesus never, never had sex. He was, he was never married. He, he, was, he, was, uh, he, he, never, he never went down that road. But the Bible tells us that he was tempted as all of us are but yet without sin. But Jesus models true love for us, not in this sexual way, but in just this God-defined way of love. In verse 2, we're told there that we are to walk in love as Christ loved us, and we gain two takeaways from this. We know that true love gives. It gives for others, and it gives to God. So this is the, the overarching overarching parameters for what true love really looks like, whether it is a sexual love or it is, is this agape love, love for, for brothers or, or love within the church or love from God. It's, it's a giving love. It gives to others and it gives for God is what it tells us there. Sexual love, though, explicitly is designed, defined, and distributed by God. In other words, it's His idea. It's His creation. God is not somehow in heaven nervous this morning that I'm talking about sex in church. It's not, he's not because I'm sticking to the Bible, and it's his idea. He's designed it, he has defined it, and he has distributed it to us. And let me give you some verses on this. Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28 say, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. There is no other way to read that other than that there is a sexual command in that. This is God's design from the beginning of creation. In chapter 2 of Genesis, verses 24 and 25, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Marriage is God's idea. And God immediately in Genesis 2 defines this issue of sex to the relationship of marriage between a man and a woman. The rest of the Bible is filled with instances where I could, I could read verse after verse. And, and if you somehow think that the Bible is sort of this tame book that's boring, just read some of these. Proverbs 5, I'm not going to read it to you. But it, it talks about that a man should delight in his wife, that, that his body should intoxicate him throughout their entire life, or her body should, should be intoxicating to him throughout the life. That it just reads Song of Solomon. It's not, it's not a hidden thing what that's talking about. It is talking about this sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. Sex is more than, according to the Bible, a perfunctory task. It is God's gift for both procreation and for pleasure. It is a gift from God that is to be received and to be enjoyed, but only as He has intended. And so with that, let me tell you, just let me give you some false loves that our text this morning gives us that we are to reject. And this is where I know, going into this, that for some, this will be a point where you will be tempted to really amen this. For others, this will be a point where you will be tempted to walk out. You, some will not like this. 
Some will, will like this a little too much. Okay, so let me just give you what the Bible here gives us, these false loves that we are to reject. We see them there listed in verses 3 and 4. If true love is self-sacrificial, then false love is self-indulgent and self-gratifying. And that's, that's what we see in these words. Now, I want to remind you that when Paul writes this letter to the church at Ephesus, he is writing to a church that is reaching. Everybody they're reaching is a new convert. Everybody they're reaching is a new believer. There's not a whole lot of people that are, that are fed up with how church is being done over here, and they switch, and they come over to Ephesus. That wasn't happening. That is, a, that is an invention or, a, or an issue that we have in our time, not in theirs. They were reaching new people that were coming out of paganism, that were coming out of places where sex was, was anything but God's design. It was glorified for sex in its, in its own self. It was at the expense of using another person, and Paul's writing to these new believers who need explicit instruction on this issue. Okay, so that's just a, just a disclaimer what we need to be reminded of. These words, false loves we are to reject. First, immorality. It's a broad New Testament word that, that's used to speak of all kinds of sexual Im- impurity uh, or, or immorality. It is the word porneia. It is the word from which we get pornography. It speaks often in, in Scripture. It's used to speak of extramarital sex, premarital sex, adultery, incest, homosexuality, among other things. The New Testament often uses it to speak of premarital sex. We live in a day, and I don't mean, I don't want to sound like an old fuddy up here, but I just want to tell you what the Bible says. We live in a day where increasingly our culture sees nothing wrong with living together in a sexual relationship before going into marriage or even saying, I don't ever plan on getting married. We just want to live together in this relationship, be it monogamous or be it open. This is the day in which we live, and the Bible explicitly here is going to tell us that premarital sex, living together before marriage or outside of marriage, is sinful. It's not me. Listen to the words of of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 2 says, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, porneia, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. In other words, there's going to be temptation. Uh, You know, things haven't changed. We think oftentimes we want to scrub away the times of the Bible and think, yeah, but that was a different time. I mean, you know, no, it wasn't any less sexual then. It isn't more sexual now. People still have temptations and desire and urges. And what Paul here is writing is just as applicable to us today, meaning that there is going to be desire. And because of that desire, it is better for you to marry so that you don't burn with passion and commit sexual sin by having sex before or, or outside of marriage. In the context of, of the woman that was caught in adultery in John chapter 8, you remember that story where they, they bring this woman to Jesus and they throw her at Jesus' feet and they say she was caught in the act of adultery. What do you say, Jesus? And Jesus kneels down in the dust and he begins to ride in the dust and, and he says, 
let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. They're getting ready to kill her by throwing rocks at her. If, if you don't have any sin, then throw the first stone. And one by one, they dropped their stones and went away because of the conviction of knowing they were just as guilty before God as she was. Well, in that context of this woman caught in adultery, the Pharisees took a jab at Jesus by hinting that he was the illegitimate child of premarital sex. You remember the story that Mary was betrothed to Joseph, but before they had come together, she became pregnant with Jesus. And Joseph thought, she must have cheated on me, and he wanted to put her away quietly. And it was revealed to both of them that it was not the normal way that a baby is conceived, but instead that the Holy Spirit had come upon Mary. Well, the rest of humanity doesn't know that, and the Pharisees took a jab at Jesus by hinting that he was this illegitimate child of premarital sex, must have been the the child of this affair, this adulterous affair that Mary had had. In John 8, 41, they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality, we have one father, even God. And in saying so, it is subtle, but they are saying to Jesus, at least we know who our father is. The Bible explicitly condemns all premarital and extramarital sex. Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 8 and 9, it's the, it's the context that I read earlier. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual porneia, immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. This is not a slam against the Gentiles. What he's saying is that those who don't know God are going to behave differently than those who do. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually pernea or the sexually immoral and adulterous. There is is no case to be made that God says it's, it's okay for you to have sex before or outside of marriage. It just cannot be, you have to, you have to ignore the Bible to be able to make that claim. I remember as an 18-year-old kid working at that feed store after high school and having this 30-some-odd-year-old man who was a Sunday school teacher in my youth group watch him have an adulterous affair with a woman and come in and brag about it to me as an 18-year-old and say to me, God knows how I am. He made me this way, and therefore it is okay. There is no case to be made without ignoring all of Scripture. The second false love that we should reject is impurity. The word means uncleanness or dirty. It's the, the grosser types of sexual sin. I won't wander into a, a sordid list, but the Bible does use the word specifically to address homosexuality. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27 says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie 
and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to the dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations to those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. That's not me. That's God. I realize that in this day, this is unpopular. In this day, saying this will not grow a big church. But I am not concerned with growing a big church. I am concerned with standing before my God and giving an account one day for how I have opened the Word of God to the flock that He has given to me. This is not in any way a hobby horse or a personal vendetta or agenda of mine that I just have this sort of phobia of homosexuality and I'm against all those who... who who live in that realm. That is not the case here. I'm, I'm giving this the same treatment that I am giving heterosexual sex outside of marriage. It is sin. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 19. We read it in, in a few sermons ago. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. We live in a day where nothing is off limits. We live in a day where we line up at the box office to go see movies that objectify women and that in in so many, uh, and I, I will not go into descriptions of those, but yet we are so quick to condemn those who are caught in some sort of hypocrisy when it comes to sex. We condemn what we celebrate. We don't know our right hand from our left. And what we need is to hear the clear word of God. That impurity, uncleanness, homosexuality, the grosser types of of sexual sin are to be rejected. Third false love that we are to reject is covetousness. Now at first glance, this one seems to be out of place. Sexual immorality, impurity... He's talking about premarital, extramarital sex, homosexuality, and covetousness. Does that seem like it goes together? No. It seems like this thing's out of place. We tend to think of coveting as connected to money or material things. But let me pose the question, can we not also covet sex? Do people not do it all the time? Is there not a multi-billion dollar industry built off the back of coveting sex. Covetousness here has to do with craving, craving sexual sin, lust for someone else's body or for selfish gratification. Again, Ephesians 4.19, our, our culture, those who give themselves over, have become greedy to practice every kind of impurity. There's this craving, this greed, I want this. And people will spend all sorts of money on this to get this. 
This is where all sexual immorality and impurity actually begin, is, is with this issue of covetousness. Outward expressions of, of premarital and extramarital and homosexuality or whatever, all of them begin here with coveting. The outward expressions begin with the inward cravings of the heart. This is what Jesus was making the point when he said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 20 through 23, what comes out of a person is, is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. See, the issue here is not our environment. Our environment certainly is tainted by this, and our environment certainly is polluted by this, but we can't sit here in a smug way on a Sunday morning and think that if we could just clean up the environment, then all of this would go away. Because the reality is our greatest problem is not what's outside of us, but what's inside of us. It comes from within. It's why we need, our, our greatest need is for God to give us new hearts. And a, and a fourth, fifth, and sixth false love to reject, I'm going to take these together, is filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. Uh, we're, we're to reject these false loves. Uh, the, these are terms that refer to a dirty mind that expresses itself in vulgar speech. And so it's a person who seems to be able to take anything in the midst of any conversation and turn it and make it some way filthy. You've been around people like that. Well, maybe you misheard me today. I've given you these six false loves that we are to reject. And maybe you've misheard me today because maybe you think all you heard was the one that was offensive to you. Or the one that is a hobby horse to you. See, I'm not singling out any of these as any worse than any others. All of these are sinful and all of them are to be rejected, whether it's premarital or extramarital or adultery or homosexuality or lust or dirty thoughts or vulgar speech. All of them, the Bible here says in these verses, in verse 3 and 4 says, must not even be named among you. Let there be no. We, we have tolerated these and we have, we have flirted with the culture and we, we, have, we have gone as far up to the edge of this as we possibly can go and think that as long as I don't cross that threshold or that line, then I can still be holy and godly. And the reality is what the Bible is calling us here to, what God is saying is don't look for the line between, between evil and godliness and try to get as close to the line of evil as you possibly can. But instead, what he's telling us is that we should seek to go away from, away from evil. Let none of this even be named among you. That's why I'm not coming before you and preaching this more often than I do, because I don't want this to be something that we dwell on. You begin to dwell on this too much and it can, become, it can have an opposite effect that it, it becomes this sort of path that you go down in a twisted, evil way. God says, let it not even be mentioned among you or named among you. And, and his point is that we must identify those things that are fueling the flames of, uh, of sexual sin and we must 
remove them. We must starve the fire. Maybe, maybe this is a topic for you that you say, man, I really just don't struggle with any of those. Those false loves that, I, that you just laid out, Pastor, I mean, it's really just not an issue for me. And I'm thankful for that, and you ought to be thankful for that. But I guarantee you that in a room filled with this many people, there are plenty of people in this room that right now you know this is an issue for you. You know you struggle. You know you are tempted. And what, what is being put forward to us in this, this passage is that we would look for those things that fuel those fires and that we would extinguish them. That whatever it is, that if it, means, if it means going away from that in your life or avoiding that conversation, whatever it is. Now, ultimately, it comes from within, but you oftentimes are led astray by these outward influences. And he's saying, find these things and cut them off. And I'm not saying to you this morning that this will be easy. I mean, we live in a day where never has it ever been so much the truth that impulse equals identity. That if I have a certain desire or a certain craving or a certain bent, if I don't act on that impulse or desire or craving, then I'm not being true to who I am. And therefore, to be true to who I am, my identity, then I've got to act on that. Do we realize how foolish and ludicrous that logic is? I mean, by that logic, because I crave fat and sugar, fried food and sugar, I should just give up on cardiovascular health and give myself over to self-identifying as a fat man, right? I should just say, you know what? Diabetes, bring it on. That's who I am. Right? That's, that's the silliness of this logic, we know as believers that we live in a world that is broken and fallen because of what happened in Genesis 3. It's not just that it causes things like cancer and death. It also causes disordered passions like sexual temptation. And yours may be broken to where you, are, you struggle with same-sex attraction. You may struggle with lust for maybe heterosexual attraction or, or something else. But this is a result of the fall, and we are not, our identity is not in that thing, that desire or that craving. Our identity is in Christ. And therefore, every, every craving that we have does not have to be acted upon. We are called to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, is what verse 2 says. He gave himself as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. What this means is, I'm sure, we know this, I can confirm this, because the Bible tells us this. I'm sure that before going to the cross, Jesus had a craving and a desire and an impulse not to go to the cross. We know this because in the garden, he sweat drops of blood and said, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. That's what he was craving but instead of sinfully acting upon that craving, instead, he gave himself to God. And this is what we are called to as believers when it comes to true love in the area of sex. You may have this struggle in this area, and it better be a struggle. Because when you give yourself over to it, we're going to find out in just a little bit, you are in real danger 
Whether your struggle is same-sex attraction or lust after the opposite sex, as a Christian, we are called to fight it. Well, the question then is how? Paul doesn't leave us hanging here. He gives us the answer in in the last part of verse 4 when he writes these words. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Now again, that seems really out of place, doesn't it? Paul's remedy is to be thankful? Really? Paul, this is your solution? This is your solution, Paul, to premarital, extramarital, homosexuality, adultery, lustful thoughts, vulgar speech? Paul, to be thankful? Really, Paul? I mean, doesn't this just seem a little bit Pollyanna? I mean, just a little bit like put on a smile and praise the Lord. I mean, forgive me, but this a little, little Osteen-like, right? This is the solution. This is the solution because when we covet, we assess that what God has indeed provided is not right. And it is not enough. And God doesn't know what He's doing. And He is not wise, and He is not kind, and He is not loving. And maybe He's not for me at all. When we covet, that's what we're saying about God. That's why he equates sexual sin with idolatry. Is because when we look at what God has provided and we say, not enough, we try to replace God with something else. With whatever that idol is in our life. When it comes to sexual sin, it chooses to replace God with this substitute, which is oftentimes another person or self-gratification. But those substitutes, they may promise a great payoff, but they will never, ever deliver what they promise. This is why the pornography industry in our day is a multi-billion dollar industry. It's because it never promises, or it never delivers what it promises. And therefore, people have to go back over and over and over again. Therefore, the remedy to a greedy, covetous heart is to confess that what God has provided is enough and to thank Him for it. Thankfulness replaces idol worship with the worship of God. It says, God, I have this struggle within me. It is not what You have given to me. It is a result of the fall. Your Word commands this of me. This is how You define true sexual love. And therefore, God... I want to submit to that and thank you for that. Lord, now give me the power to believe and to obey in that. This is the remedy. It is thankfulness. Thankfulness concerning sexuality refuses to stray outside of the bounds of God's design. It chooses to accept sex as God has defined and designed it. It receives sex between one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage as a gift to be enjoyed for personal pleasure and for God's glory. This is thankfulness. We are to receive this true love. We reject the false loves that the world says, this is really love because we understand that those are simply idols that can never deliver what they promise. But God says, this is in the context of sexual relationships is true love. Marriage between a man and a woman for your pleasure and for my glory. 
So practically then, how do I give application points out of a sermon like this? To, by the way, a very multi-generational congregation. And I'm thankful for that. You know, if we, were, if we were seeking and targeting a demographic and we were going after 20-somethings, I would not come with a lot of trepidation. Well, I, mean, I would, but it would be a different type of trepidation. This just packages itself a little differently. So how do we apply this? Three things from the text. One, believers in the room, hear me. Heed the warning. Heed the warning. Verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. No inheritance in the kingdom. When I first read this, I thought, this is a little, like, why does he say in the kingdom of Christ and of God? Why is he making this distinction? Well, this is a little tool here that Paul uses in a lot of his writings to where he points to both this lordship of Christ in this life right here, right now, and the lordship of God Almighty in the kingdom that is coming, is to come, this eschatological kingdom, right? And so when he says here that the person who uh, practices every, sexual immor- immor- immorality and impurity and covetousness, all this, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. What he's saying is you are displaying that in this life, he is not Lord of your life. And by displaying that, if you persist in that, you will find that not only was he not Lord of your life now, but he won't be then either. In other words, no heaven, no eternal life. Now, I want, to, I, I want to, uh, to explain something here, and I want you to hear me. This is not talking about the person who battles their sin. This is not talking about the person who battles their sin and occasionally fails. Instead, what this is talking about, this is talking about the one who's not in the war at all, who has just surrendered themselves to this this area and has given themselves completely over to this and said, I don't really care what God says. I will justify it. I'm going this way. The one whose life is characterized by a pattern of immorality and impurity and unrestrained sexual craving and vulgar speech, this is who he's saying has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. It's the one who says, I don't care what God says. That person is lost. For the person who battles this, and you wake up every day knowing that it's going to be a battle today. For the person who who knows that by going certain places, it will cause you to to wrestle with a certain, certain temptation. You know this, and you make preparation for that, and you're in the battle. For that person, this is not telling you that you were lost. This is confirming for you that you are indeed a believer and it is encouraging you, stay in the fight. But the one whose life is characterized by a pattern of this will not inherit heaven. They're not going to heaven. It makes sense. I mean, why would someone who loves the things that God hates think that they would enjoy being in a place where God rules and reigns? Do we automatically think that that we lived against God and contrary to God here, but in the end, hey, we're going to love being where He is. 
That's, that's ridiculous. Here's the other explanation that I'll give to you or appeal that I'll give to you as well. If it is a pattern in your life, it doesn't have to remain a pattern. And you don't have to miss heaven. There is grace and mercy and forgiveness in the gospel of Christ. Nowhere else will you find it. It is found there and there alone. We sang about it leading up to this sermon that our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. No matter how much you have sinned in this area, whatever it is, He can extend mercy to you. You can be forgiven and you can know Him as Lord in this life and Lord in the one to come. Heed the warning. Secondly, verse 6, beware of the deception. Beware of the deception. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. People will not like this sermon. They'll say that I am intolerant, that I am ignorant, that I am homophobic, that I am repressive, that I am old-fashioned, that I am bigoted. People won't like this sermon. Many of those people who won't like this sermon or who will say those things about me after hearing me preach this sermon, both now and later, maybe on a podcast, they'll have those opinions of me because I am, I'm speaking to an issue that they want to hold on to. And to justify their behavior, they will attack me. And that's okay. You can attack me. I would simply remind you that you're not really attacking me. Because as I told you in the beginning, I am staying very close to what God says. If you disagree with me, come make a case. If you think that I've gotten it wrong, come make a case. Paul here says to them, beware of their deception. What he means by this is those people who will not like this will say things like, that was a different time. God understands. I mean, this is a different day and age. I mean, come on, it's 2018. And it will all seem like it is, it is, is winsome and maybe some of it makes sense. You'll look at the, at the swell of momentum in culture and you'll say, man, the culture seems to be going this way. I mean, I don't know. And what Paul says is don't buy the deception. Their words are empty. They promise real life. But the reality is, verse 6 tells us, that they only deliver death. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So beware of the deception. And last, rest in God's grace. Rest in God's grace. Verse 7, therefore, do not become partners with them. This is a wonderful little verse that is absolutely filled with hope for the believer. Paul's words are a warning. They are not a pronouncement. Do you understand that? 
And when Paul here is writing this letter to the Ephesians and he's saying to them, don't let this stuff even be named among you. Get rid of this. This is, this is a warning to them. This is not a pronouncement. He's not writing to them saying, the lampstand has been removed from you. You are apostate and there is no more hope for you. That is not what he's saying at all. Instead, he is giving them this warning that as the days grow darker and darker, there will be more and more temptation to cave and to capitulate to wherever the culture goes. And he's saying to them, don't. He's not saying, this is it, you're done. He's still warning. And this is wonderful. By using this personal pronoun, them, he says a whole lot. When he says there, therefore do not become partners with them, he's drawing this all-important distinction that while they surely have sin in their lives, they are not them. He's speaking to a separate group. This is not elitism. This is not Paul in an ivory tower saying, ha ha, we're, we're saints and, and they're sinners. He's reminding them of what they have received. He reminds them that they are, they are recipients of grace. I mean, look back up at, at verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. He's reminding them that I'm telling you this not as someone who has lost all hope, but as the one who holds all hope. You are a child of God. And this goes back to what I've been saying forever, it feels like in this section, is that for us, it is no longer fitting that we still act the way that we did. They are called to persevere, not to save themselves. And here's what I would say on this. When I, say, when I tell you to rest in God's grace... What I'm saying to you is that for the believer, there is still, there's, there's mercy every day. The gospel is for you every single day. Rest in that. There may be days when you struggle, but you fail. Get up from that. Confess that to the Lord. Maybe confess that to a brother or a sister. Get help, but then move forward in the gospel that there is mercy that is more than enough to cover your sin. Oh, that, oh, that this might be a place where it is safe for those who are children of God to drag their temptation and, and their, their sinful tendency and their struggle for them to drag it into the light. Oh, that this would not be a place where, where there are people that do not feel that they would be received here. I am not saying that we are receiving those and let them practice whatever they want to practice, whether it be heterosexual sin or homosexual sin. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that this would be a place where people come, they find grace in God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then they struggle, and they battle this, and that's okay. And we don't have to have it all together. That we don't put on this plastic smile and say, look at us. But instead we say, man, I'm battling this thing and I need help. That's what I want for this place. I don't want people to cling to and wallow in their self-gratifying indulgence, but I do want this to be a place where they can drag it into the light so that they can get help. I'll close with this passage. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared 
bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. May we fight and may we engage in the good works that God's called us to. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the empowering of your spirit. Lord, to preach a a difficult subject, but Lord, one that is necessary for us to hear. God, I pray that you would now take your word, you would take the words of this sermon, and God, you would cause those that are of me and not of you to be forgotten. But Lord, that those that are of you, God, that they would move beyond our ears, beyond our cognitive retention and God that you would move them into our hearts Lord that you might use this sermon and your word Lord to bring conviction to your people grace to the hearer Lord that you might extend mercy that forgives us in our sin and Lord that you might give us power to live holy lives for your glory It's in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you an opportunity to reflect and respond. As Ethan plays and we respond in song in just a minute, perhaps maybe there's something that God has has shown you that is an action step for you. Maybe it's confession. And I don't mean coming up here and taking a mic and confessing to the church. That would be a special circumstance, and, and, and that's not at all what I think anybody here is called to do. But I do think there is a place for confession. First and foremost, confession to God. Confession is simply agreeing with God on what he he calls sin. Maybe you've justified something and you've said, I know God says this, but I don't think it really means this. Confession, maybe first off for you, is right now between you and God to say, God, I've been fooling myself. I've been deceived by empty words that are going to bring wrath upon my soul. God, I confess this is sin, and it is dragging me away from you. Confess it to him. Maybe a second confession is in order for you as well. One where you go to a brother or sister that is trustworthy, and maybe there's an area that came out today and, and, and it was brought to, to your I mean, front and center for you and you need help. And find a brother and si- or sister and just go to them and confess to them, I'm struggling here. I want to battle this. I want to glorify God with my life. But I'm telling you, I'm getting beat up. Find a brother or sister that can place their hand on your shoulder and pray with you and hold you accountable can call you, can speak into you, can ask you, can, can, can call you when you're not being truthful and just say, quit lying. Maybe that's the type of confession that you need today. These steps up here at the front, they are open to you. There's nothing special about these steps, but maybe this is a good, just 
action step for you. You need something tangible and you just come to these steps and you just kneel and you pray. Maybe you come with someone and you all pray together. Maybe it's a husband and wife and you've been dishonoring in in some things in your own marriage and you come together and you pray. Ask God for his forgiveness. Ask him for his strength. There'll be people in the prayer room to my right and your left through those doors. They would love to pray with you. If I can help you at all, I'll be here on the front row. I spent a lot of years in student ministry. I spent a lot of years as, as a senior pastor now. I've heard a lot of stuff. I rarely get shocked anymore. I can promise you this. If you hold on to your sin and you keep it locked away in what you consider to be darkness, you will never be set free from it. And you will be eternally embarrassed when you stand before God one day. But to confess that before Him, to confess that to a brother or sister, to confess that to a pastor can bring hope and healing and joy. And so whatever it is that God lays on your heart to do, I want to implore you to be obedient to Him today. Let's respond as He leads. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.